This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Can we get an authentic spiritual experience from technology? I'm Sigal Samuel, and I write for Vox about the intersection of technology with ethics and religion. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Imagine that you're walking into a supermarket. It looks kind of unusual. The banner over the door says, the scattered supermarket of special spiritual services. When you walk through the aisles, you don't see food or drinks. You see dozens and dozens of cutting edge technological devices. Each one claims to offer you a shortcut to enlightenment, a higher, more spiritual state of consciousness. One aisle is full of virtual reality headsets. Another is full of psychedelics synthesized in a lab. Another is packed with neurofeedback headbands that guide you through meditations. And another contains EEG caps meant to stimulate your brain into a peak experience. This supermarket is a fiction for now. There's currently no one place where you can go to buy all these devices. But all these devices are in development, if not already hitting the market. Kate Stockley and Wesley Wildman are researchers at Boston University's Center for Mind and Culture. They call these devices Spirit Tech. That's also the title of their new book. And honestly, it's one of the most fascinating books I've read in a really long time. It asks questions like, is an experience of enlightenment that's induced by technology authentic? And if we democratize spiritual insights so they become accessible faster to lots more people, not just those of us who can afford to spend decades meditating in a cave somewhere, can that actually help our species evolve? Kate, Wesley, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. So happy to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. So I want to say right off the bat, there is a knee-jerk, skeptical reaction that a lot of us might have when we hear this claim that technology can help humans achieve a profound spiritual experience. Did you feel any of that skepticism when you started researching spirit tech? And do you feel any of that skepticism now? It's one of the big questions that we grappled with right from the beginning, both because it's a question for us and because it's a question for our readers. There's a very important side of that question that comes from traditional religions who have for a long time been the gatekeepers of spiritual and religious experiences. And they're somewhat wary whenever someone comes along and says, there's another way to do it. And traditional religious people tend to be conservative anyway, so there's a real hesitation 
and I experienced some of that myself. As we went through the research and wrote the book and learned everything we could about this, most of my concerns in that regard have eased somewhat, Mm. and that would be mostly because the best of these products are being produced by people who are really mindful of that problem and very careful about how they do it. Yeah, I agree that it isn't just that we were aware that that was an issue and that was somehow kind of a sticky point. It was actually a motivating force for writing the book too, that that kind of skepticism is healthy and good when we're dealing with our brains, bringing in outside influences, whether that be for your spiritual life or for anything. So I think it's wise to be skeptical. So this idea that tech can help humans achieve a profound spiritual experience Nowadays, when we're thinking about that tech in terms of sort of brain-based technologies, really kind of sci-fi sounding stuff that we'll get into in a minute, people have this idea like, whoa, wait, really? You're saying that tech can help humans achieve a profound spiritual experience? But actually, for millennia, different forms of tech have been helping us achieve spiritual experiences, right? And we might not think of them as tech today because they're a lot more simple than the tech we normally think of, but things like prayer beads, prayer wheels, mandalas, or even yoga or rhythmic drumming in shamanic dances. These are all spiritual technologies, in a sense, that are designed to, you know, redirect our attention, change our state of consciousness. So I appreciated that you you both pointed out in the book that this isn't maybe as much of a departure from traditional spiritual practice as we might think. Not at all. It's it's absolutely in line with the way that humans have operated for millennia. You know, many people would say that what makes homo sapiens homo sapiens, right, is our ability to use technologies to alter our environments and to influence our brains and bodies, whether that be tool making, which is kind of a form of technology, or the types of things that you described, you know, shamanic drums and mandalas and prayer beads. These are all physical material objects that we've used to influence our religious and spiritual lives since the beginning of history, right? So mm-hmm. seen in that way, spirit tech, these kind of new technologies, this is just kind of a continuation of that tradition in a way. Absolutely. And you talk in the book about all sorts of really like out there kinds of new technologies for triggering religious or spiritual experiences. I wonder if we could actually start with each of you telling me about the type of spirit tech that you are most excited about either because you've personally tried it and it really blew your mind, or because you predict it might have a really huge, amazing impact on humanity. So, Wesley, do you want to start with that? Sure. I think I'd go straight to the VR. I have not tried the VR-based experiences. I have a very boring spiritual life. (laughs) Uh, Kate is much more adventurous than I am. But those virtual reality sacred experiences, I think, are right at the beginning of a major transformation. And this is in medical care, especially mental health treatments, as well as in spiritual experiences. So there's going to be a very broad-based cultural acceptance of VR as a treatment mechanism. People are going to get used to it, not just playing games, but also for other things. Mm -hmm. And as they do, they'll experience for themselves what scientific research has shown, that virtual reality tricks your mind in an extremely profound way. 
even though you know what's going on in the environment around you, you do feel immersed in the VR environment. As people get more and more used to that on lots of different fronts, it's going to seem very ordinary for them to think about it as an adjunct to spiritual quests. So I think that's the thing that's going to have a fairly rapid and large-scale influence the quickest, I think. We're going to definitely come back to talk about virtual reality in a bit. Uh, I just want to hear first, Kate, what about you? Wesley said you're more adventurous. What have you tried in this realm? (laughs) I've tried neurofeedback, which I do think is one of the most promising technologies that we talk about just in terms of accessibility. It's less invasive than many of the technologies. So it's a little bit, it could be kind of understood as a starter technology in many way on your way to something a little bit slightly more invasive, like brain stimulation or something like that. I also think that with a lot of the new research and kind of the shifting tides that we're seeing with psychedelic research, I went to, and I talk about this in the book a little bit, I went to a conference in New York City about psychedelic research, and I was blown away to hear the type of healing and the type of transformation that can come with psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. And it's been an interesting historical journey, right, from legal use to illegal use, now back to potential forms of legalization and regulation via the medical kind of psychotherapeutic realm. So I'm really excited to see how that develops. And I think that it holds tremendous healing potential for people and spiritual potential for folks too. So I'm excited for that. And then the ultrasound brain stimulation. So whereas Wesley talked about just virtual reality, which I do think is one of these things that we're going to see really accelerate very quickly, brain stimulation, especially ultrasound brain stimulation, seems to probably be more of a long-term goal, right? It's going to take a little longer for that research to get sorted out and for that to hit the market. But I think when it does, I was very impressed and excited when I spoke with a research team out of Arizona with um, Jay Sanguinetti and Shinzen Young. And they just seem to have a really wise and excellent perspective and approach to the development of their technology and to the potential for that technology to really benefit individuals, but also kind of to really actually achieve the goals of meditation, of equanimity and compassion and peacefulness. So I'm interested to see how that develops. The chapter in your book on brain stimulation kind of blew my mind. It is more out there than I think some of the other forms of tech that people know about. My understanding is that neuroscientists have actually figured out what the human brain looks like when it's in the middle of specific spiritual experiences. And they're now figuring out how to technologically stimulate the brain into those experiences, for example, by beaming ultrasound pulses at certain areas of the brain. Can you, Kate, since you were you were talking about brain stimulation, can you explain just the basic mechanics of how that works? You know, explaining the basic mechanics is much more difficult than it seems like it should be. This is kind of one of the questions that Wesley and I kept coming back to is really what exactly is happening on the cellular level and on the brain function level. It's not tremendously clear, but we do see. So Jay Sanguinetti and Shinsen Young in Arizona had noticed that there was a brain disorder where a certain area of the brain would shut down. And in that mode, 
folks would be totally detached from their egoic motivation to do things, right? Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, this is pathological, of course, because this is a brain disorder, but they notice that there's something akin to this experience and the goal of meditation, like the goal of the quieting of the ego, right? So they wondered, well, is there any way that we could target this particular area of the brain in a similar way, but not to such an extreme extent as is the case with this brain disorder called eighthymhormia? And they tried that. And remarkably, it was extremely successful. And Shinzen Young, of course, is this meditator. He's a Shingon monk who lived in Japan for many years, an expert meditator for 50 years. So when his brain was stimulated in this very particular way, he was able to evaluate, oh, how similar is this to the meditative state that I know that I can achieve through traditional methods. And sure enough, he said, this is it. This is the same kind of experience, the same quality of experience. And so they've been kind of focusing on different methods and ways for stimulating that area of the brain. So it's it's an interesting process, right? Kind of a surprising journey toward figuring out which areas of the brain need to be quieted or stimulated in order to achieve these goals. But Right. Um, if I'm remembering right, it was like down-regulating the basal ganglia in the brain has this effect. And what really struck me in that chapter was that this monk, Shinzen Young, I think actually said, you know, when his colleague beamed the ultrasound pulses at the basal ganglia in his brain uh, using this sort of wand, he said the meditative state that resulted was like one of the top five meditations he's ever had in his decades and decades of meditating as a monk. Yes. And that really blew me away because that's, you know, coming from someone who really knows what he's talking about. And he's saying, hey, this thing worked and it it worked really fast. Absolutely. And they did the same protocol with a group of meditators who had on average, I think, 30 years experience, you know, just to replicate what they experienced with Shinzen. And the folks said the similar thing. So this isn't just kind of an altered state of consciousness, right? They're looking mm -hmm. for real spiritual insights. And they said, indeed, they got the same types of insights that they would really only expect during an intensive, multiple week long meditation retreat type of thing where you really can go deep. So they experienced those kinds of effects with the stimulation. So yeah, it blew me away too. Right. So, I mean, we're talking about effects like, you know, feeling this sense of unity, like oneness with the universe or, you know, your own ego consciousness kind of melting away. And so we're really talking about enlightenment experiences. And I, I think this understanding of enlightenment that just a certain pattern of brain activity, a certain neurological signature just is what it is to have a given spiritual experience that idea might feel unsatisfying to a lot of people. Is it too reductionist to say that that's all the experience is? All of our human experiences are reflected in the brain, right? So it's no surprise that spiritual experiences are also. And all of our human experiences are also diffusely spread across the brain. So it is very difficult to point to one area of the brain and say that what is happening in this area of the brain is that experience, right? Because there are always lots of things happening in the brain at the same time. And yet with the new brain science that's coming out in the past 30 years or so, we're seeing just an extremely fast and exciting acceleration in brain science research. And we are kind of able to track certain types of experiences or certain types of thought patterns and things like that. So on the one hand, you know, we want to be humble with the way that we 
approach which areas of the brain are influencing certain types of experiences. But at the same time, I think it's okay also to be excited by what we can know and what we do see. And in instances like this with Jay and Shinzen, they're really seem to be targeting something that is real. I think people get a little freaked out when they imagine that their most precious experiences, such as feeling in love with someone or the compassion you feel for someone who's suffering or spiritual experiences of great importance to them, they get freaked out when they picture those things as having some type of brain translation. Obviously, their meaning and value and importance can't be reduced to whatever's going on in the brain. That's something that's possibly the most important thing about them. The importance of those experiences are shown in the way people's lives are built around them, the way they choose how to spend their time and energy and so on. So they're incredibly important. But still, people get freaked out when they discover that this is the sort of experience that can be traced back to various brain patterns. Uh, That's something we all need to get used to. It can freak you out when you start thinking about that for the first time, but If you get used to thinking about it, it stops freaking you out. You just come to realize that your brain is this incredibly beautiful and complex machine and biological organism and basis for consciousness and decision-making and virtue cultivation and all the other things you treasure in your life. It just is. That's what it means to be living in a body. There's lots of support for ways of thinking about your body like that. For example, Some religions like Judaism and Christianity think of the afterlife in terms of resurrection. In other words, it's not the soul living beyond death separately from the body. You actually need a body in the afterlife. Mm. That focus on embodiment is built into certain religious traditions and there should be, I think, a warm embrace of discovering that your body is actually mediating things like intense spiritual experiences. And uh, what Kate said about the distribution of these experiences broadly in the brain is incredibly important. There is no such thing as a God spot. Even in the experiences where your sense of self becomes relatively muted and your awareness of the environment becomes stronger such that your bodily boundaries feel like they dissolve, That's not happening in one part of the brain, even though you can use that part of the brain to trigger an experience like that. That's distributed all across the brain. So there's a bit of a delusion when people get excited about their brains having these special spots that are the special places where spirituality resides. It's not like that at all. I want to talk about this also in terms of another brain-based spiritual technology that is already on the market today called neurofeedback. And so, you know, whereas brain stimulation that you were just talking about, it's um, more pricey to access, you know, you'll typically have to go to a clinic and they might use ultrasound beams or they might use electricity or, or magnetism to target some area of your brain. But neurofeedback is different. If I've got around 300 bucks to spend, I can go out right now and buy a Muse meditation headband, for example, that's a thin headband with sensors on it that I place on my forehead. And it'll supposedly help me get into a calm meditative state using neurofeedback. So can you just explain the, how does that get me into that calm meditative state? The kind of technology that's involved in mind reading is very different than the kind of technology involved in mind writing. In mind writing, you have to stimulate the brain to create a certain type of experience. 
in mind reading, all you're doing is seeing what state the brain is in. And you can do that using an electroencephalogram, which is something that has these sensors that stick on your head and maybe one over the back of the ear or something like that. Very few sensors. They pick up electrical activity near the surface of the brain. And it turns out that a lot of states that we get into mentally as human beings have pretty consistent translations in terms of electrical signaling near the surface of the brain that these sensors can pick up. So if you're dreaming, for example, those sensors will show someone very clearly that you're having a dream, that you're in a a REM state. You could be anxious about something and those sensors will pick up anxiety. And in the same way, they can pick up a spiritual state and they can compare the spiritual state that you're having with a target spiritual state that an expert meditator could have. And by comparing those states, they can create feedback, maybe visual or auditory feedback, that can help you move in the direction of the target state. So in this way, you use neurofeedback using these EEG sensors to help someone learn how to meditate. Now, what's causing the brain to change? Nothing to do with the technology. What's causing the brain to change is you. You're actually meditating. But your meditation effort is guided by information that's produced by these sensors that are reading your mind and comparing where you're at with where you want to go and giving you feedback so that you can steer your meditation effort. So in in the book, you have this nice chart where uh, you you show different uh, types of brain waves, right? So there's like the alpha and beta waves, you know, the sensors tend to show those waves in our brains, I think, when we're more activated, like paying direct attention to something. And I think, you know, there's other like theta waves, for example, come up in our brains when we're more in a daydreamy, sleepy, calm state of mind. And so it sounds like the sensors can kind of pick up what brain waves is my brain producing at a given moment. And then It knows, you know, okay, but we're trying to get your brain to produce these waves instead. And so it will give me certain images or sounds that are meant to kind of guide my brain towards those desired brain waves. And you talk about certain kinds of like images or sounds that are almost like intrinsically tantalizing to a human brain. One image might be a flower that is unfurling, right? Blossoming. And when you see it blossom a little bit, your brain naturally wants to see it blossom all the way. Or you have a little clip of a basketball player trying to, you know, sink the ball in the basket. And if the ball is halfway there, you know, your brain naturally wants to mm, see it swish into the basket. And so how does that work to kind of nudge your brain to get into the sorts of brain waves that are desired? It's very interesting because there are ways in which seeing a flower unfurl or a basketball go into the hoop are also consciously rewarding for us in addition to being rewarding for our brains, which is a slightly different criteria, right? The neurofeedback that I did in a clinic, so I do have a Muse headset Mm -hmm. and that gives a lot of auditory feedback. And the, the neurofeedback that I did in a clinic was also totally auditory. So I didn't actually have images 
providing feedback for me. But instead, I saw some of kind of the more technical visual representations of the data that was being produced because I was sort of consciously interested in watching that, right? So if I closed my eyes, for instance, I could see on the screen when I opened my eyes, I could see what had happened in my brain as my eyes were closed. And I thought that was very cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's interesting because when I walked into the room and I kind of heard the the beeps and dings that were going to provide my brain with feedback, I thought, wow, those are really annoying sounds. You know, they didn't seem rewarding to me consciously. And of course, as we got going, the sounds didn't really annoy me and they were fine. But what really matters is that my brain would find those sounds rewarding and would want to create more of those kinds of sounds versus the beep or the ding that was less rewarding. So I could tell when I was sitting there, you know, trying to meditate and trying to kind of receive the feedback, I could tell when my brain was doing the right thing because I would hear the sound that was supposed to be the positive feedback. And then vice versa, I could also tell when I was a little bit distracted or I opened my eyes and looked around, I could hear that negative feedback ding also. And so, but from a conscious place, your brain is really doing the work behind the scenes. So you are consciously trying to meditate, but the feedback does operate on this unconscious level, which I just thought was really fascinating to be able to have the feedback operating on an unconscious level at the same time that I'm conscious, right? And aware of what I'm doing as well. Okay, this kind of is helping me make sense of the Muse app. I should say, so the at-home versions of neurofeedback tech where you're not going into a clinic, but you're doing it just at home with a, you know, something you can buy from the store for 300 bucks, uh, like the Muse headband. They typically come with a a smartphone app that pairs Mm -hmm. with the headband. And, you know, like many Silicon Valley behavior modification apps, the Muse app is really gamified. It, Mm -hmm. It rewards you with these points or cute birds if you stay in a calm state long enough and they you know the birds like they they make a sound when you get them and so it sounds like you're saying that's not just simple gamification to reward me in the way that like a million and one apps do nowadays but it's actually doing something subconscious to my brain that is helping my meditation right it's kind of both it's best of both worlds right although like i do Part of me does kind of wonder, is this really best of both worlds? Because there, there is something unappealing to me about turning <laughs> spiritual development into a game like this. And I kind of wonder if we're talking about Buddhist meditation, I wonder if it undermines the Buddhist idea that we should be unattached to goals and outcomes, you know, to be sort of like chasing this game goal in this way. But maybe that's totally a wrong instinct on my part. And, and, you know, maybe a Zen master would actually encourage me to use whatever skillful means are available to me to achieve a meditative state. Is that where my instinct actually should be going here? I actually think that's a brilliant response. And that is one of the things that I spoke with Mikey Siegel, who wrote the foreword to Spirit Tech and also is featured in several chapters. One of the things that he talks about is that there is something that is lost when we put these spiritual goals into this gamification space or into that mindset, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if he has a particular answer for this yet or anything, but he's really interested in asking whether or not 
even the competition with yourself or feeling really good when you hit one kind of goal and really kind of bad when you sort of quote unquote fail at that kind of goal, that that's not necessarily always going to be the best way to approach a spiritual journey. Right. I mean, I guess, you know, a, a charitable way to look at it would be to say these sort of gamified pings are are just like leveraging our brain's natural you could call them like vulnerabilities, but whatever. It's just our brain's natural features and, and the way our brains work. And it's, it's kind of leveraging our own tendency for competition with ourselves to help nudge us towards a, a more desirable spiritual state. So you could look at it in that, in that positive way. And I think like we will get into the tricky ethics there a bit more, mm-hmm. but I want to first talk about one or two other technologies that you discuss in the book. One of them is not maybe something we typically think of as a technology, but arguably it very much is, and that's psychedelics. So there's been a lot of research in recent years, some some even say a psychedelic renaissance, about drugs like psilocybin, that's the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, LSD, MDMA, ayahuasca. There's a lot of research showing how they work to produce spiritual experiences, One question I really wonder about is, can they produce sort of mystical experiences that lead to not just temporary altered states of consciousness, but lasting changes in things that we value, like morality, altruism, gratitude, forgiveness? If the answer to that is yes, are they really an important tool for maybe helping our human species progress? In which case, maybe we should be legalizing them sooner rather than later. What's come out from the research in psychedelics is that there's a kind of yes and no answer to that question, I think, Sagal. It is possible just to have experiences that are something like transitory highs and you appreciate them and sometimes you have bad experiences as well, bad trips are a possibility. But those transitory experiences really don't have long-term effects. They don't change behaviour, they don't change values, they don't cause someone to reorient their lives and their effort, their energy expenditure and so on. But some of those experiences do have exactly those effects. So the question researchers have been most interested in is under what circumstances do you get those positive effects? And it turns out that the long-term effects are facilitated most strongly when the experience is existentially profound and spiritually deep. The spiritually more profound, the meaning of the experience, the bigger the effect short term and the longer the effect lasts so that even 10 years later people refer back to that experience they had which was so spiritually important to them as a touchstone moment in their lives that caused them to change the way they behave towards their family or it might have led them to rethink their career or caused them to suddenly become a more compassionate person and take the cultivation of compassion super seriously. So it seems like the reason why people have a spiritually deeper experience versus not has something to do with intention, something to do with what they're expecting when they go into it. It might have something to do with temperament, just their life stage and their particular personality and the sorts of things they're interested in. Sometimes it has to do with the particular circumstances of life just at that moment the crisis that they're in or the health problem that they're grappling with or the cancer diagnosis that's just arrived or whatever it might be. And people in those moments of great need 
are more interested in having a profound spiritual experience and that changes their intention. And quite often then the sort of experience they have with psychedelics does turn out to be exactly as transformative as everyone describes. But it's really different for different people and different settings. Okay, so it sounds like maybe it's not necessarily so much exactly what's in the drug that will determine whether the spiritual experience has lasting personality effects. It, it might actually be more about what intention or mindset you go into it with. I think so. People talk about set and setting as being critical. Set is the intention that you've got, the way you're thinking as you go into an experience. The setting is the social environment and the environment of your life and so on. And they've always been critical factors for thousands of years. Uh, the groups that, that use plants to create altered states of consciousness have registered the fact that you're set your expectations and your setting, your context. These things are critical factors in the sort of experience that you have. It's so fascinating because Pastor DJ Soto, who is the pastor of VR Church, who was interested in virtual church services long before COVID-19 hit, he often got a lot of pushback from folks and especially around ritual and sacrament services. So we're talking about baptism, the Eucharist, communion, you know, the bread and the wine. And they just said, this doesn't fly. This isn't the same thing. And Pastor DJ Soto thought, well, why not? Why would you deprive somebody of the experience of being baptized just because they can't physically make it into your building, right? What's interesting is that the woman who was baptized and DJ Soto himself kind of emphasized actually that there's an interesting benefit that comes along with doing it in virtual reality because she can stay underwater a lot longer. The whole ritual process, the whole sacrament can kind of be drawn out and meditated on in a new way, can kind of contemplate this notion of death and rebirth. And by the time she comes out of the water, meaning the virtual water, <laughs> she sort of really experiences this refreshing sense of transformation and liberation. I think sometimes it's easy for us to forget just how compelling the virtual experience can be, right? Mm. And one of the sort of classic virtual reality experiences is this walk the plank experience, the plank experience, where folks enter, you know, with the virtual reality headset on, they enter this elevator and are kind of taken up 50 floors or something like that in this virtual elevator. And then the door opens and they see this plank, this wooden plank sticking out. And below them, they see the city, they see the racing cars, the sky, the buildings around them. And what happens is your body really is convinced that this is what's happening, even though it's not even as if the graphics are really that good, or obviously, you know, you're safe in your living room. There's no actual conscious understanding that you are going to actually walk this plank, but your body and your brain behave as if that is what's happening. And so with the baptism, with these kind of sacraments done in virtual space, you can have both in a sense, right? Your body and your mind, the experiential features of the sacrament can be a fully embodied experience. Um, and also the meaningfulness of the interaction with the pastor and the observation of the congregants and the celebration of that moment, that can happen in virtual space. And that's not to say that virtual interactions should replace all human interactions, of course. I think there's something valuable about physical presence as well. Mm -hmm. But 
I do kind of agree with DJ Soto. And of course, I'm not a clergy member. And so maybe my opinion on that doesn't matter quite so much for them. But it seems like why not, right? If you can offer Mm -hmm. these kinds of transformative experiences to folks who, for whatever reason, are homebound or just can't make it in to a physical space, why not? Yeah. And, you know, I would have thought that the pandemic would have been actually the perfect opportunity for this to take off because we were all kind of stuck in our homes and and Mm -hmm. couldn't necessarily go to things like baptisms. Why hasn't that happened already, right? Like, how far away are we from more and more religious services actually moving into the VR space in the near future? This is something that's been promised, you know, every, like, five years, ten years, we hear, like, VR is about to explode. It's going to be the next big thing. And then, it hasn't really happened. Is that just a cost thing? Is that just because these headsets are expensive or is there something else going on? That's a great question. Honestly, I'm not entirely sure. I think I would say that the price point needs to shift, right? In order for this to be more widely accessible. Also, I think that the pandemic has been such an overwhelming experience. And so we've sort of embraced certain types of virtual meetings and spaces by necessity. I'm wondering if now as we sort of phase back into a new normal and we decide which of these pieces we're going to kind of hold on to as we move into the future in this new normal and which we're going to sort of let go of as just a temporary necessity for the pandemic time. And in that mode, I wonder if folks might begin to see rather than virtual reality churches being kind of an unfortunate necessity, Mm -hmm. if there might be a new space for welcoming that as something that can be good in any type of situation as well. So, Churches and synagogues and temples do a lot of things for a lot of different kinds of people, but one of the things they do is centralise authority and exercise control over people by setting behaviour norms and norms about what people are supposed to believe. That orientation to social control, which sociologists of religion have been talking about forever, means that they're going to be slow to move to something like VR. What you're doing in VR is creating an environment where people can anonymize themselves. They can experience a form of togetherness and a form of intimacy through conversation that they just can't get if they wandered into a church or a synagogue or a temple. You might have to be in there for 10 years before you could have a profound spiritual conversation with someone, but in a VR context, because of the anonymization, you can walk in and have an amazing conversation on your very first visit. Mm-hmm and talk about things that you'd never be willing to talk about in a real church or a real synagogue. Strangest thing, being authentic with people even though you're anonymous. It's very profound. That's something I would really like to try at some point, honestly, because it is sort of frustrating when you go to an institutional religious space and you can't really just walk up to someone and immediately launch into some profound spiritual question. You you maybe have to have a lot of small talk before you can actually get to the deep things. For years. It'll be interesting to see what happens as the prices come down. And I think a lot of people might object, first and foremost, that a spiritual experience that's induced by technology is not authentic, like quote-unquote authentic. And in the book, you lay out these three different criteria for assessing an experience, its causes, its content, and its consequences. So can you explain each one? And then we'll get into the question of like, which we should be skeptical of or not. The causal criteria are 
about how an experience happens, about how it occurs. For example, some people want to say it's only authentic if it hits me from out of the blue, mm-hmm. if it's spontaneous, or if it's happened to some holy leader who says it's the real deal and you should go after that as well, or if a holy leader endorses it. Or you have to try. And if you try and make effort, then the experience will be authentic. So that's the causal type of criteria. We're pretty skeptical about those, especially the spontaneity and holy leader parts. Uh, Mm -hmm. But we do think the experience takes effort is a pretty good thing to keep in mind. It's a good bit of wisdom there. The concept stuff has to do with the sorts of beliefs you have because of the experience or the way the experience is treated in your community. Like Some people say you have to have this experience. For example, you have to speak in tongues or you're not a proper Christian. You hear that in Pentecostal churches quite often. So that's an example of you have to agree with us or, or else. And that, that just seems a little bit wrong-headed to me, a little bit too much like everyone being the same as everyone else. We do think, though, that there's a lot to be said for make sure that the experience you have is sort of continuous with everyday wisdom. Make sure it's not totally contradictory with what you'd learn in a university, for example. So make sure your ideas aren't totally crazy. We think that's pretty sensible. But the sort of criteria that matter the most to us, that we think are the most valuable, are the ones having to do with consequences. And they focus on the effects of those spiritual experiences. Do you become a more loving, more peaceful person? Are you more compassionate towards people who disagree with you? Are you able to control your impulses better so that you can be more present to your children when otherwise you might have felt really impatient towards them? Things like that are signs of long-term change that we think say a great deal about the authenticity of the experience. So that's where we put most of our weight on the consequences of those experiences. And those criteria make perfect sense to apply in relation to spirit tech, as well as into traditional spiritual experiences that may come about in some other way. Right. So that that last one, the consequences, is the classic, by your fruits shall you know them, right? Uh, So this is sort of very pragmatic. You mentioned that you're pretty skeptical about the first category, the causal criteria, you know, this this idea that it, it really matters how a spiritual experience came about. I kind of like giggled at the part in your book chapter where you compare this to a, a Gucci handbag, right? For a Gucci handbag, it, the causes really matter. It really matters that it be made in Italy by this specific Gucci company, right? Because that's like part of how we're establishing the value of the object of the handbag. But a spiritual experience is not a handbag. But you do kind of give more credence to this other causal criterion that is about effort. There is maybe something to the idea that like, I should maybe have to put in a bit of effort to have a spiritual experience, not just be some doofus that comes off the street and suddenly expects to feel enlightened. But I I wanted to push on that a little bit because I'm really struck by something the Dalai Lama said in 2005 at a, at a conference, he was asked what he thinks about the possibility of tech leading to spiritual awakening. And he said, this is a quote, if it was possible to become free of negative emotions by a riskless implementation of an electrode without impairing intelligence and the critical mind, I would be the first patient. 
So he doesn't seem to think necessarily that effort matters all that much. If, if you can just use an electrode to get there, maybe that's fine. What do you think about that, Kate? If you're making it effortless, are you cutting out part of what makes a spiritual experience meaningful? You know, I don't think so. <laughs> I think that the journey is always meaningful, whether that requires a lot of effort or whether it is a flash of insight, right? Because some folks would even say that spontaneity is more important than effort, right? Mm -hmm. That there was nothing that you did to bring it on, to bring on an experience of the divine, but that it just happens to you sometimes and that that means it's even more authentic. So, so there's all sorts of thinking on this and the effort itself can oftentimes feel very and be very spiritual, meaningful, but that doesn't mean that an, an experience that wasn't very, very effortful is somehow less authentic, right? It's just maybe a somewhat different journey. Yeah, you know, I'm hearing this actually in the context of what you both said earlier about set and setting. So mm -hmm. if my internal narrative in my mind as I'm going through an experience is like, I've made all this effort and I have this narrative about like my whole spiritual life and I'm on this journey, that can be part of the set, right? Mm -hmm. That can be part of like the intentionality and the, the mindset I'm going into the experience with. And that could potentially enhance the experience and be relevant and valuable in that sense. That's right. There's another aspect to effort as well, and that's after you have a mind-blowing experience. You still have to reform habits. What these experiences can do uh, completely change your motivation structure. You can be absolutely determined to be a more patient partner or parent, for example, but that determination needs to be translated into stable habits. That does take effort. That is to say you need to behave that way and you need to keep behaving that way to lay down new neural pathways so that your behavior, which becomes more and more natural the more you do it, is consistent with those inspiring intentions that got you started in that direction. So part of the continuity with this uh, insight, traditional insight that you have to have some effort put into it for it to be authentic. Part of that has to do with creating new behavioral lines, uh, new habits that can be very positive for you. And naturally, it just takes time to do that. Well, this actually gets at a question I wanted to ask about habits and, and long-lasting effects, because I know that when people meditate for years and years, it actually changes structures in their brain. Like certain areas of the cortex get thicker, for example. So meditation achieves these lasting effects for people where their traits are different. But if I take a shortcut through brain stimulation or neurofeedback or something like that, do I miss out on that? Do I only get maybe potentially temporary state changes, not lasting traits? changes. Quite possibly that may be what happens, especially if you treat it as a kind of a lark, as a fun thing to do. But mm. anything that's spiritually important, existentially vital, has to involve comprehensive engagement. It has to involve every part of your life. But these incredibly powerful experiences can completely change your willingness to take on something like that mm -hmm. and they can sustain a new determination for years. That's why they're so powerful and that's why they're productive. 
of changed experiences because they are so powerful. Mm -hmm. Right. So it sounds like you're saying, you know, even if it's only provoking a temporary state, the tech might still be valuable because the state I, I get a taste of might incentivize me as a novice to want to meditate more or, or keep putting in the effort to sustain a practice. And in the book, you kind of compare spirit tech to training wheels, which is an image I really liked. But I did wonder, is there a risk that people never take the training wheels off, right? Like the tech becomes a crutch that people are reliant on. And then if the techno boost isn't available to them one day, they just have no idea how to achieve that desired state on their own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the metaphor of the training wheels is really important. Um, I mean, that kind of concern exactly is the type of thing that makes communities really important, right? So that when somebody is engaging in spiritual practices of any sort, that they've got a community surrounding them, helping them make good choices and reigning in kind of excesses on all sides, right? But I also think that the way that the technologies are designed. So there are a couple brain stimulation headsets on the market. Mm -hmm. Zendo is one good example of that. And there are a couple neurofeedback headsets on the market. Of course, Muse is one of them, as we've talked about. The idea is that the brain state that is encouraged by these technologies, it does create a state shift as opposed to a stage shift, of course. But the idea is that it really is targeting the desired part of the brain in such a way that with repeated use, it will actually change the brain, right? It will help to create those new neural pathways. And so in a sense, it's training the brain, hopefully in a way that wouldn't prevent somebody from being able to access those states without the technology. I do think, of course, there's the possibility of overusing or misusing anything, including spiritual technologies. Yeah, I think that makes sense. One other thing I did want to ask you is about the content or conceptual criterion, because you were mentioning the importance of continuity with ordinary experience, right? And like that is important because if I have some mind-blowing experience, I need to feel confident that the content of that experience, like what I'm told in that spiritual epiphany, is not just some sort of psychotic revelation that is actually going to take me down a really, really bad path. And so something I wonder about when I think of like the safety of these technologies is like if a total novice is suddenly thrust into a deeper spiritual experience than they've ever imagined, some intense epiphany, could that really destabilize them? You know, let's say like a guy ha is having this experience for the first time and he has this revelation that tells him to quit his job, leave his wife and kids, run off to the mountains and become a shepherd, right? Like there's a danger here of having such an experience and people who don't have guardrails or like the training or the community or the wisdom to know how to interpret these experiences so that, you know, they're not being maybe misled by dubious content. You know, there, there's a safety concern there in terms of psychological safety. And I just wonder if you think spiritual tech entrepreneurs are thinking enough about how to guard against those risks. Some of the entrepreneurs really are thinking about that carefully, particularly the ones who are mindful of the role of community in helping people discern the wisdom of the ideas that come to them when they have intense experiences. I think one of the problems is that some other entrepreneurs are really out to make a buck and they just see this as a market that can be exploited. 
So one of the points that Kate and I are most anxious to try and communicate in this book is how important it is that the people who are producing and marketing these technologies are mindful of the sorts of possibilities that you just described. The shepherd possibility is, could be the short name for it. You know, I wanted to throw out there too that virtual reality, I think, is one type of technology that can be very disorienting for folks, given how powerful it is and how effective it is in tricking your brain that you're in a different physical space. There have been some reports of kind of depersonalization and um, psychiatric troubles following intense use of virtual reality. You know, I think it's well known too that psychedelic experiences, you can have what's sometimes called a bad trip, right? Mm -hmm. And so those kinds of technologies are just absolutely so powerful. And people who are vulnerable for all different types of reasons should make sure, of course, to be wary and to be wise about what they put into their body and what kinds of technologies they're going to apply to their brains. But traditional meditation can psychiatrically destabilize people too. Absolutely. So if you go to a a big meditation retreat, for example, a a good one is going to ask you about your psychiatric history and only let you in under certain conditions. So it's not just spirit tech that has this problem. People have been having nutty ideas based on intense experiences for a long time and people have been psychiatrically destabilized by intense experiences for thousands of years too. That's true. We shouldn't pretend that this is a new risk entirely that is only coming up because of tech. But I do hope that because the tech is new and so the risks are maybe not as well known and, and there hasn't been as much sort of wisdom developed around how to implement the tech, I hope that there will be a lot of emphasis in the coming years on creating that like wise community and and regulations and guidelines that are necessary to guide people as they're experimenting with these technologies. Mm-hmm. And yeah. to close us out, I'm wondering if you can actually just think ahead a few years, maybe to 2030 or 2050. Paint me a picture of religion in 2050. Do you predict that a bunch of companies are going to get into spirit tech in a kind of predatory way where they're creating products uh, within a kind of capitalist framework that are not necessarily wisely taking care of people's spiritual needs? Do you imagine that most churches will be rejecting VR, neurofeedback, etc., or that they will have realize they need to incorporate them. And maybe these devices will be tucked into pews and pulled out routinely as part of traditional services. What do you each picture in terms of the future of religion? You know, I think that we will see what you describe. I think we will see charlatans coming out of the woodwork and taking up these technologies and trying to make a quick buck. But we also see that with every single other type of religious practice and technology that's ever existed, right? So this is nothing new. And I don't think it's going to be somehow worse with spirit tech. I don't. I also think that we're going to see a lot of really, really wise individuals and wise communities who are going to see the incredible potential that brain-based technologies hold for spiritual insight and wisdom and enlightenment. And I think we're going to have to navigate this landscape, right? There are going to be really 
healthy and transformative and life-giving examples and opportunities, and there will be the opposite. (laughs) Um, So I think that that's one of the reasons why it's so important for scholars to be part of the conversation and for clergy members to be part of the conversation and for spiritual entrepreneurs of all type. And I think that we should just continue to be vigilant. I think that in 2050, the fundamental social reality is going to be that traditional religions have lost a tremendous amount of ground in all Western contexts. Secularization will have marched onwards and any traditional religious group is going to be very much to the side of mainstream culture. They're going to survive there because I think they adopt one of two strategies. One is to double down on their tradition and their traditional beliefs and they're going to be fiercely opposed to spirit tech and just about everything else in culture. The other is because they successfully adapt, and that means that they might adapt to less supernatural worldviews, they might adapt to new and rising technologies, they might find a way to reframe their message to make it sensible to people who might not be interested in believing 10 impossible things before breakfast in order to qualify to be a part of a religious group. So that social reality is really critical Mm -hmm. because even after religion withers, traditional religion withers, people's spiritual quests continue. So a lot of people still have them. We've discovered that. And these brain-based technologies of spiritual enhancement are really valuable in those contexts. Those people also tend to be younger, so they're going to be more adventurous, more likely to try these things. So I think we have a very large shift in the landscape that's coming in the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. I personally am excited to try these things, even as I have some skepticism and cautiousness around them. Like all technology, right, there's dual use that can have a lot of good potential and a lot of risks. That definitely seems to be the case here. Wesley, I like that you used the word well-rounded. Hopefully, we'll be able to implement these technologies in a a well-rounded way, a wise way. And I think the answer to that big question of whether these spirit technologies can actually help humanity progress or, or even usher in a new phase of human evolution might come down to, well, how wisely are we implementing these technologies? I hope the answer is yes. I hope we're going to see wise people come up to sort of help guide us and hold our hands through the process of implementing some of these technologies. And in the meantime, thank you both for holding our hands as we kind of walked through these many aisles of different products that are soon becoming available in in this pretty wacky supermarket of spiritual services. Uh, So thank you both for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. It's been such a fun conversation. Thank you. Great to be with you. Awesome. Thank you. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, 
rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode.